Welcome back to the Girl at the Game podcast. As always, I'm your host, Gabrielle, founder of Girl at the Game. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Al of Nesson. Honestly, like, I want to rant a little bit. Do it. I finally got out to golf because, as some of you may know, it's now legal to do that in Massachusetts, finally. So no cop car this time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did not get kicked off by a cruiser driving on the fairway this time. Legally showed up to a golf course and through a little window talked to the pro in the pro shop and he sent me off on my way to play nine holes. For one, golf was so safe to play to begin with. Charlie Baker finally gave it to us. Massachusetts was one of the last states, but there are so many regulations to go play. I played at a course back home in Western Mass, and they had actual like pool noodles that were in the holes that the pins were in. And like if you hit the pool noodle, it takes up most of the diameter of the hole. So if you hit the pool noodle, you essentially got the ball in the hole. They don't want you touching the pins and pulling them out. Just happy to be out there playing. Like it just makes it was so nice to walk nine holes. We're all going so crazy, you know? So, like, I know not everyone benefits from golf being open, and it's kind of a champagne problems type deal. But for the people that do play and do use it as a way to relieve stress and just be out there safely with friends, oh, it was so amazing yesterday. That's my rant. Well, I mean, look, we have a sports podcast. So talking about champagne problems, like we're, we're, we spend so much time talking about how much we miss sports and sports in and of themselves are a champagne problem in the grand scheme of the world. So when you're happy, I'm happy. I've never been golfing before. I've been to a driving range, I think twice in my life, and I just do mini golf. But I, I see the appeal of whacking something really hard with a sharp stick. So that seems like... <laughs> I go boxing, not anymore because everything's closed, but I box. So I I understand the appeal of uh, relieving some tension. But we can talk about champagne problems, but I'd rather talk about popping champagne and our very, very special guest. He and I became friendly a couple years ago at a charity event. And it's pretty weird when you become friends with your childhood heroes, because if you told me when I was 12 that I'd be friends with Keith Folk, I would have told you that you needed to go to the hospital and get a brain scan because there was clearly something wrong with you. But Keith Folk is our guest today. We are talking to him about 2004 and his career, the surgery that he regrets waiting to get, life without baseball so much. It was so fun, such a treat, such an honor to have him come on the show. Starstruck, absolutely starstruck. Which is weird because we're like friendly and we text and stuff, but I'm still such a dork about it. I have no chill. (laughs) Keith was a great interview and he gave us a really interesting perspective too, I thought, of what it's like to play for Boston. And I mean, specifically the Boston Red Sox. One of the many heroes from that team. Perhaps should have been MVP. Yeah, I don't even, I mean, I don't I need a moment. I need words. I have no words. I can't put into words. I mean... Think about how many times you've heard that famous call. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Yeah, it's just I, gave me I the have, chills. I have tears in my eyes. <laughs> and I, I've watched those games so many times. Like that was my 
coping mechanism when I was in college and I was suffering like moment of honesty when I was suffering from PTSD and severe anxiety and I couldn't sleep at night I would watch oh four games and four days in October I would watch all of that to calm me down and help me fall asleep in the middle of the night and to be able to talk to Keith Folk about those moments like personally for me just it's surreal to talk to someone who who made our dream come true and when I say our, I mean mine, yours, like every Red Sox fan, my almost 102-year-old great uncle who was born the year they won in 1918 and then spent the first 86 years of his life hearing the freaking 1918 chants from the Yankees fans. And we talked to the guy that made, made it, it all happen. Yeah. It's freaking amazing and so surreal. And I'm going to stop before I burst into tears. And I, I think we should just play this interview because I, I, yeah. I need like several minutes to compose myself. This is something I have been wanting to do for months, long before Girl at the Game even started. Childhood hero of mine and probably one of yours. The closer from the iconic Reverse the Curse 2004 Boston Red Sox, our hero, Keith Folk, is on the show today. Keith, thank you so much for coming on. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Well, good afternoon to you. We are good. How are you doing? Hanging out here, soaking up some sun in Arizona. You're just rubbing it in, aren't you? Just right That's from the exactly job. That's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, what, is, what have you been up to without baseball? I mean, you would be working right now. Yeah, it, you know, it's kind of a two-part story. It, I can't believe I, I'm saying that I, I miss baseball, but I do. But it's been a great time for uh, to, to hang out with my kids here in Arizona, spend a lot of time with my mom. So it's, you know, it's kind of the good and the bad, but Arizona is a great place to be right now. Are you homeschooling your kids? You know, that's uh, it's been an interesting topic. Um, I can't really homeschool them too much. You know, they, they have online classes, but the school districts are really far behind trying to get the kids information and get it to them in a, a timely and easy fashion. You know, so they, they Zoom call and we try to do some of it. But, uh, you know, some of the way they teach, you know, even math now is very difficult to, to pick up with the Common Core. But we get through it and, you know, we're doing our best. Yeah, I feel like this is really showing everyone that teachers should be, as a former teacher myself, teachers should make a lot more money. It is not easy. What else have you guys been doing? Because you're in Arizona, so you have great weather. You know, we mountain bike a couple times a week. Uh, you know, it's starting to warm up, so the pool temperature's coming up. So, the, you know, these guys, we swim every day. Um, we play catch. We, you know, hit into a net. The boys and their mother have been spending some time up north, you know, uh, fishing and, and hiking and stuff. So and camping, you know, Arizona, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a safe place to be, but, you know, our numbers are way down here. And, you know, it's there's a lot more empty space to be out by yourself. I'm very jealous as someone who grew up in a place where there was no empty space and our front yard was a small patch of grass down the street from Fenway Park. Uh, the empty space thing is very appealing to me now. I didn't get it as a city kid, but now that I'm like scared to be around anyone, I totally get it and I'm very jealous. I keep retreating back to Western Mass where I'm from just because like you, there's actually like real places you can hike and go kayaking and kind of distance yourselves. Yeah, that's how I am. You know, I grew up, you know, in East Texas, a country boy where it's couldn't see across the street just because of the you know the tall pines and you know that's one thing I love about Arizona is the fact that I can come out I can see sunsets you know I can see mountains and it's a very short ride or walk or drive and all of a sudden you're out in the middle of the desert where 
you know, it looks like there's not another person within a hundred miles. So it's uh, it's good for the brain every once in a while. Got to put up with the heat, but it's a great mental escape. Arizona definitely has some of the best sunsets I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places in this whole country, I think. You know, it's wild because, you know, a lot of times you get those high clouds and, you know, I can't believe I've ever become a fan of sunsets and taking pictures, but some of the colors you get in the sky and some of the sunsets are just, it's amazing. You know, how you can get the purples and oranges and reds and it's like, it's amazing. And it's truly my favorite time of the day is, you know, that late afternoon when the sun starts going down. Yeah, we see you on Instagram. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's, that's what it is. I, I can't believe I'm, I love sharing, you know, a lot of the things that we do now. And I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and getting softer, but it's uh like to keep up, uh, let people keep up with me in the world. Yeah, well, speaking of kind of utilizing social media a lot during this time, I write for Nesson, so we saw you do like a little Twitter takeover, rewatching some World Series games with the Sox official Twitter account. Was that fun to do? Had you ever rewatched that whole series? No, that's um, the stretch here last few days is the first time I've ever rewatched that series. It's kind of funny when we were doing that, was it last Friday with Nesson? And then I, they didn't even show my innings. So I'm like, well, <laughs> I didn't even get Seriously? to see myself pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. And it, Saturday night, I came back in game six and, and I was doing it by myself. But, you know, it's I love interacting with the people and answering questions. And, um, you know, I actually saw that one of my little tidbits made it to the news about the uh, the glove. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that, obviously, because, you know, players are really partial to their own equipment. You know, you see everyone has these really cool, their own custom made cleats, gloves, bats. What was it like borrowing someone else's glove when you didn't have yours, especially in such a high pressure situation when you want to feel as in your element as possible? Did that throw you off at all? What was it like to have to make that adjustment? You know, I, I don't remember real clear now but i do remember when i opened up my bag and i started to unpack my you know you know when we got to new york you know they they kind of unpack your bag for you but i looked at my bag i'm like huh this is interesting i'm like looking around you always look in your neighbor's you know lockers to see if your stuff's there and i'm like holy cow i can't believe i forgot my glove (laughs) but i guess all the excitement and um you know after game five and as far as that went i would probably had a couple beers in me and just kind of got lazy and a yeah, good thing, uh, Liskanik, Curtis Liskanik, his glove was really similar to mine anyway. So went out there and, uh, you know, got the job done anyways, fortunately. Yeah, it's funny. You can see his name was embroidered on his glove. And so in some of the pictures of you embracing Jason Veritek, it's like your hand, but it's his glove. And those pictures are immortalized forever. And I, I feel like that's something that it's a detail that people might not have noticed for a long time. And then you do this rewatch of a game you hadn't even, did you say you've never watched these games again? Yeah, I, I it's one of those things I don't really like to watch myself pitch. So I, I've never watched them before. You know, it's I, you know you see the clips every, you know, every October, or whatever about the, about the, the final, but it's like, I've never watched, you know, the actual video, the actual game. I was going to say, you have to at least have seen the final out of the 04 World Series. Like, I can hear that call. I can hear back to folk in my head, like, right now as I'm <laughs> saying it. So, I mean, I, you've definitely at least seen that. Like, you've seen yourself oh, yeah. leap in the air, Renteria, you know, kind of slowly walking to first base. And it just, there's nowhere for him to go. And then everyone just loses their minds. Yeah. I feel like, is it kind of like how actors don't like to watch themselves in movies, maybe? You know, maybe. You know, I think it's one of those things where I'm, 
I have this image of how everything went, and I'm really nervous about going back and watching and be like, oh, that pitch wasn't as good as I thought it was. I'm like, oh, I got lucky with that one. And I kind of don't want to pop my own bubble. <laughs> it's been, what, what are we, 15, 16 years now? And it's like, I want to make sure I preserve the, the memories that I have, how I want them, and not how I see myself on TV, so... You did have a zero ERA for the ALDS and the ALCS. So I think even if you're going to be your toughest critic, you should go watch those games from the first two series. You had an incredible postseason run. Don't be too hard on yourself. It's pretty spectacular yeah. stuff. <laughs> watch game six the other day. So it was, you know, I kind of maybe it's one of those things where I kind of burst the bubble and, you know, I, I start doing it. Like I said, I'm going to watch the, uh, the World Series starting tonight. So I'm so- getting over my fears. Having had not seen it yet, just we got to talk about 04 and just you were so dominant as a closer that whole postseason run. But to stand on the mound for like two important outs, obviously, to win the World Series and then also against the Yankees to force that game seven, um, two totally different scenarios. But can you walk us through just the feelings on the mound for both of them? You know, it's one of those things as an athlete, especially for myself. I had to really control my emotions. I learned as a, you know, as a younger player that I couldn't let my emotions get the better of me because I, I started to try to do things that I wasn't capable of. You know, it's uh, you know, you get that that hitter O2 in the count and all of a sudden you know, it's like, you know what, I'm gonna throw this one right by him. And all of a sudden, you know, he's trotting around the bases and you're looking up and you're like, What what did I just do? You know, so it doesn't matter if it's game six, you know, against the Yankees or the World Series or if it's, you know, it's a, it's a meaningless game in, you know, in, in July. When I approached the mound, it's like I treated every outing like it was the most important out of my career. You know, the next pitch I'm going to make is the most important pitch of my career. And I really trained myself over the years to not put more importance on one pitch than another to prepare myself for fortunately what was able to happen to us is that way when you are put on the biggest stage in baseball, your emotions don't get the best or better of you. You know, you don't start looking too far ahead. It's like, let me take care of this pitch right here and then we'll see what happens. And you just keep repeating that mental process over and over, you know, and that way when I ran out of the gate, you know, in New York or in St. Louis, you know, I ran out there able to get it done. You definitely got it done. But I have to ask, everyone calls this the greatest comeback in sports history. And honestly, like, I really don't know how anyone could dispute that. What did it feel like going into game four of the ALCS, just like as a team being down three games and having lost 19 to eight the night before? And, you know, there's the famous Millar quote where he's like, don't let us win tonight. What was the feeling in the clubhouse before game four and then after game four? Well, you know, it's funny because after it comes out, when that four days in October and all that stuff came out, really it was kind of cool how they captured Millar saying all this because it really was that that was our mentality. You know, after you walk into the clubhouse after game three and everybody kind of sits in their locker and there's just that, what the heck just happened? I mean, not only did we lose, we got, you know, we got waffle stomped. And so it comes a point where, you know, press leaves and all that stuff. And all of a sudden you're like, and you come in before the next game and you know what? It's like, you know what? We, we've made our bed. There's two things are going to happen and neither one of them are really all that bad. We're going to win. We're going to play tomorrow. We're going to lose. We're going to pack our stuff, and you're going to start your winner. So it got to a point where we really kind of just took the pressure off ourselves. We can't get any worse. You know, I guess we'll be another one of those Red Sox teams, or let's win tonight, and we'll see what happens. 
And so we, we went out there actually very loose and played kind of carefree. And it was able to, to let us play, like I said, loose. And then we went out there and just did our job. We went out and had fun. You win tonight and then you win tomorrow and you just keep repeating the process, you know, till it was over. What was it like when Robert stole that base? Now in like the lore of that moment kind of is seen as obviously this huge turning point. But as a player, when this was happening, what did it feel like to have that kind of jolt of energy injected into the game? Oh, I mean, it was tremendous. You know, the fact that Millar laid off high fastballs and, he, you know, he got the walk to put Dave on was a, a major feat in itself. But that was one of those things. And even watching, seeing that video today, it still makes me nervous. I still think he's going to get thrown out. Me you know? too. But <laughs> everybody, you know, everybody on the planet knew he was stealing. You know, you have a dominant closer on the mound. He's fast to the plate. You know, uh, it was a Posada. It's like, you know, he had one of his best times ever throwing to second. But, you know, in that situation, fortunately, Roberts was just fast enough to beat it out. And as soon as he's safe, you know, it's like you see the emotion on his face and the clubhouse and in the dugout. And it was one of those things. It's like, all right, here we go. And then it was just worked out how we had Billy Miller, the man who who handled Rivera very well. You know, he comes up there and he drills one into the outfield and we tie the game up right there. You know, then then the rest of the lore happens with, you know, with the with Poppy and all that. I can watch that game over and over. But once that series was over and you were moving on to the World Series, I think it was Pedro who said not in the ESPN, but in the actual like MLB official World Series movie, which I've watched probably 200 times over the last 15 years. I think it's Pedro that said that once once you guys won the ALCS, once you beat the Yankees, it kind of felt like it was yours for the taking. And obviously it was because you went from being down 3-0 to winning eight games in a row to win the World Series. Was there really kind of that shift for all of you once you kind of defeated the Yankees? Was it like, we got this? Or were you still worried that you were going to, like you said, become another one of those Red Sox teams that made it all the way to a World Series game seven and then went home with nothing. No, you know, after games four and five and and really once we were, you know, we battled in, in six and we, you know, we took that. When we came out in game seven, behind the scenes, subconsciously, we knew we were going to dominate. It's like we had we, we were playing and we felt like we had won, you know, 180 games in a row. We really felt like we had this to win. When Damon came out and all of a sudden we jumped up on him quick in that game seven, that mentality never left. A couple of days off before the World Series started, but we just, we had that killer instinct at that time. We were the quiet assassin. Like we had a mission and there was nothing on the planet that was going to derail us from that mission and, you know, and, and beating St. Louis and, and bring the title home. I so... have chills. <laughs> <laughs> it was, but you know what? It was funny because... Everybody talks about the Yankee series, but I mean, it's four games against St. Louis. I mean, it's not like we we're playing a minor the league Orioles. club. I mean, yeah, I don't <laughs> want to say that because I may need a job someday, but but you're you're right. It's like, it's not like you're playing a slouch. I mean, that's the best team in the other league, dominant team, but we were, we were on a mission. We, we weren't going to be denied. Do you think that maybe that series with St. Louis gets like really overlooked a lot because of like the documentary four days in October and all the hype around the comeback in the moment at the time? Did you feel like it was that way then as well or just like now looking back on it? 
oh, well, you know, we, I don't think we could have recognized it then, but you know, it was one of those things that it was such an adrenaline high accomplishing what we did coming back. But, you know, we were very careful to make sure that, you know, everybody was still on the same tracks and head in the same direction, but there's no way at the time you could have thought that, oh yeah, the, the world series was actually against the Yankees, you know, and there's people that, I mean, I talked to, they're like, oh man, that 04 World Series was awesome. When you, you know, it's like you guys beat the Yankees. And I'm like, well, you know, we didn't beat the Yankees to win the World Series, right? And they're like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah, we played the Cardinals. We had to beat them also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not how baseball works. But it, it's also, I mean, for that series, it kind of was how baseball worked. That it was like, you know, it was David and Goliath. And you guys really had to overcome, especially after 03, where it was just like such a defeat. And I actually, one time, was on the phone with Kevin Millar and he just goes, Aaron bleeping Boone, just like <laughs> virtually no context to it. We were just talking 03 and 04 and he goes, yeah, Aaron bleeping Boone, but he didn't say bleeping. And I was just crying, laughing, just like how intense, like it really did feel like, yes, you beat the Cardinals, but so much Yankees. But I'm curious because that team was so special. Who was your favorite teammate on that team to just hang out with? Yeah, I probably have to say probably Dougie Mirabelli. We had played together with the Giants and the Miners, you know, years before, but he was always one of those very calming presences for me to be around. You know, we pitchers always hung out together, but sometimes you start talking too much shop. You know, I would hang out with Dougie, and he was always one of those guys that would just make me laugh and kind of divert uh, attention if needed, you know, off of something serious into something funny. So, you know, he was my probably one of my favorite teammates. There's always all these crazy stories about Manny, like his crazy antics and being kind of wild. Who is the funniest guy in the clubhouse? Funniest guy? I guess it's probably one of those things that everybody has their moment. Millar was obviously a character, but, you know, there's sometimes that things can get too much. You're like, all right, that's enough for now. <laughs> he was probably the biggest, I don't know, I'd call it jokester, but, you know, he was definitely one of the guys who would keep the, keep the clubhouse loose. He would say things that needed to be said you know, to keep the clubhouse loose. That stuff's important. But I, I brought up Manny also because I don't know if you saw, he wants to make a comeback in Taiwan. Do you have any thoughts on that? Are you going to start watching Taiwan's baseball? I'm just curious because, you know, he's a former teammate of yours. And at this point, everyone from the 04 team is retired and he's almost 48 years old, but he wants to make a comeback yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about one of the greatest hitters and you know the game has ever seen. So, you know, when it comes to him hitting, I think he could probably compete, you know, but if he's going to be a DH, I mean, being 48 years old and then going out and running around every day can take a toll on his body. But, you know, I, I applaud him for trying, you know, and if he played, I would definitely love to watch him play. I mean, I'd love to watch him hit back in the day, so it wouldn't be any different now. The sound of the ball leaving his bat is still one of the sweetest sounds I've ever heard, and I... I would love to hear it again. So power to him, you know? Yeah, it's just one of those things. I love the fact he has enough energy to even try right now. I mean, that's that's what uh, I think is pretty cool. Are you saying you don't? I'm, hap I'm happy with retirement. No, <laughs> you know, it's we, we have that fantasy camp every year with the Red Sox and, you know, and you throw down there and it takes me, you know, it takes me a month to recover from that. And uh, I still love the pitch and I love to compete. But, you know, the, the body, what you put your body through on a day-to-day -day basis is like, you know, I'm like, no thanks. I don't want to train that hard anymore. And I ask you to unretire about like once a month. So that's really, <laughs> I yeah. know you don't want it. <laughs> I'm happy on the, uh, you know, the player development side, work with the young players. You know, it's like just try and, and share that passion with those guys.
We definitely like want to talk about your work with the Red Sox and development. But before we kind of get out of your playing career, kind of leading up to your retirement, I think I read before that part of you leaving the Red Sox and like, I think I read about disagreements with you and the training staff about getting knee surgery and you not doing it. Is that a big regret in your career? Oh, it doesn't get any bigger than that. Yeah. So, you know, that's one thing people don't really realize is when I came to Boston, it's like, I knew that there was something wrong with my legs, my knees, like, you know, they're giving me fits. And yeah. um, through 2004, you know, there's times where I wouldn't be able to run and I'd have to be in the uh, the pool, you know, or bikes, you know, whatever it is upstairs on the machines. So, I mean, we're probably talking the last third of the season is when we started talking about, it's like, all right, we're going to have to do something about your knees during the off season. It's like, yeah, we're going to have to, you know, give them some tension, go in and get them cleaned out, whatever it was. And then with the hype of what happened in 04, I had the highs of winning the World Series, but also had the lows of, you know, I was going through divorce. And, and so the, the off the field stuff was really hard on me. Whatever happened, it's basically, it got forgot about. We didn't do anything. So I go into spring training in 2005. We're going through our physicals. You know, I go through them and all of a sudden, uh, before we go out for that first workout, I get a call and say, hey, uh, you know, go see Tito in his office. And all of a sudden I walk into the office and it's Francona, it's Theo, it's the entire medical staff. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? So we sit down and um, the Dr. Gill, I think was our doctor. So he's like, I don't like how your knees are. It's like, I don't think you're going to be able to make it through the season. I think we should go in and take care of them now. And at this time, I was in such personal turmoil over, you know, baseball and then the personal life. I needed baseball. Thought of sitting on the DL for the first, you know, two, three, four months, whatever it was, was horrifying to me. So I basically told him no. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think I made it till probably June before I really, I couldn't pitch anymore. And I started having surgeries and trying to cover, come back from having your knees shaved down and stuff. It was, it was a very bad decision of me not to get him taken care of because it was basically what ended my career over the next two years yeah and the Red Sox go on to win another World Series that not to put like a yeah. more of a damper on it but uh what was but, it know, like well, to watch for, them in 07 just winning uh it? I I didn't you know that was one of those things where I was so bitter with life after uh you know I I basically walked away from my contract or we had a, an option to opt out and so I couldn't wait to opt out because playing in Boston was, it got to where it wore on me. You know, it's, I wasn't pitching well. Fans love to tell you how you weren't pitching well. So I was getting very angry with the game, with the city and stuff. So, you know, when we parted ways, I was happy to leave. You know, I ended up retiring in 07 the first time just because I, I was, the body was hurting. And so I, I had to shut it down for a year just to try and recoup from, you know, from the previous couple of years. You're probably one of the best people to ask about what it's like playing in Boston. Obviously, you're saying it was difficult for you in the moment when you're going through all this stuff on and off the field. But how do you look back on it now, like especially working for the organization? You know, looking back on it, it's still an emotional time for me because I think about all the bad decisions, you know, I made in a very short span. It's still emotional for me. You know, I, I regret how I left the team. It's like I, you know. If I would have signed, if I would have stayed in Boston, I would have got another ring in 07. But the thing at the time is, you know, I wasn't able to contribute. So that's like, I, you know, I'd signed a deal with Cleveland to go and pitch for Cleveland. 
And I basically, I, you know, I, I called the GM says I can't do it. So I walked away from a $5 million contract just to try and take care of my, my body and my brain in, in 07. But, you know, Boston's a, it's a great place when you're winning, but, you know, passion goes both ways. When you're not playing well, you know, the fans are going to tell you what they think. And sometimes it's painful to deal with. Definitely not the easiest, but it's also pretty crazy when you think about the fact that now you can get a fan's opinion thrown at you on Twitter unsolicited any time of day. Can you imagine what it would have been like in your playing days, like especially like during the first three games of the ALCS to have fans on social media just coming for the Red Sox? Or if you had Twitter for like the Johnny from Burger King statement, I know you've like come out and defended it more since then. But like if social media were as big of a thing as it is, then it would just be so funny, the content that would have come out of that year. Yeah, you know, it's like in the social media now for for athletes and, you know, for anybody, you know, with, you know, actors, whoever it is, where, you know, it's a great uh, platform to, to, you know, be popular. But I couldn't imagine what it would have been like in 04 with that passion of, you know, where, when we were down. I couldn't imagine what would have came through on social media. <laughs> it would have been a, I mean, just absolute blizzard of negativity. Imagine like that moment that Robert steals the base and then everything turns around and imagine what Twitter would have looked like for that. Cause it's, I mean, you know, it's fun to rewatch all these games online, but obviously we already know what happens. So it's kind it's, it's still a different thing of like, you know, the Red Sox will be like, don't let us win tonight. And everyone kind of jokes like, and then what happened? It's like, we already know. And it it just would have been so cool to have it then when none of us knew how it was going to play out, but only after everyone would have totally demolished your mentions for three for three games. Yeah. It would have completely (laughs) broke you down, broke you down. Then you're like, well, you you guys already broke me down. I don't know what to do. And they were, then they would try and pick you back up. But that's one, that's, you know, that's one thing about new England sports. The passion there is unrivaled by any other region, you know, and in the country in any sport. Yeah, and you you go to games a lot. Do you go to like Celtic because you live pretty close? You live in Boston for part of the year, so do you go to Celtics Bruins Pats games also, or is it mostly just like a Red Sox thing? Because I know no, you know yeah. you and I have been at Sox games a lot at the same time. Yeah, I I don't go to Celtics games. I mean, I just I don't know why I don't go. But I mean, I'm a big Bruins fan, so we go to we go to quite a few Bruins games. But Patriots, it's you know, I love the Patriots, but I've been to a couple of football games and getting in in and out of that stadium is it's a nightmare. And pair that with the fact I love watching football on TV as uh, I don't I don't go to Patriots games anymore. Yeah, it's such yeah, a superior product on TV to watch yeah. like the broadcast. And there's so many things I want to hear the announcers and yeah, I real football see fans re- watch it on TV on the couch. Yeah. Because, you know, you go to a game and all of a sudden there's a penalty and it's like, you know, they're reviewing, you know, like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, you got you to gotta hear like Mike Pereira with the analysis on the call and everything that's yeah. going on. You know, sure. I don't like fighting with 65 to 70,000 people to go to the bathroom either. I want to be able to, I'm back. I got my chips and, and queso and my, you know, my beverage and I don't need to fight with anybody. So, like I said, I've been social Preach. distancing for years. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, for me, it's more just like, my body wouldn't survive a football game in the cold. So there's like a very limited <laughs> amount of time where I could go like in Ma- in Massachusetts, there's a very small window of football games at Gillette that I could actually 
physically tolerate before I turn into a human popsicle. And it's just for the money, it's just not worth it. You know, I'd rather have like a lazy Sunday at home on the couch with like a ton of food that didn't cost me like $15 per chip. Yeah. Yeah. Amy and I went to a game a couple of years ago against, uh, I think it was Denver where it was snowing and all this stuff and everybody's all bundled up and we're like, we had, you know, we had jackets <laughs> on. They're like, you guys are going to freeze. And I'm like, uh, yeah, not where we're sitting. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, like flex. Sitting up in a suite where, you know, it's, <laughs> it's pretty climate controlled and that's, that's about as much as I like to suffer. It snowed on opening day last year at Fenway, like only for a minute, but it was so cold. And I just remember I looked up and all of a sudden I was like, oh, it's, it's actually snowing. On well, it's just day. fitting, like, of, of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you have, like, Blue Jays players stealing home on Chris Sale, and I was like, this is just a bad sign. <laughs> it's just not good. Yeah, that was – it didn't get a whole lot better. It did. You get, that. like, you get your World Series ring, and then you have, like, Blue Jays players stealing home on you, like, 10 minutes later in, like, the second inning of the game, and I was just like, is it next year yet? And then, like, not even knowing what was going to happen this year. It's like, oh, now I actually miss it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You're like, well, sometimes having that, you know, that pain, at least it's good to to be able to feel something instead of what we're doing now is just, you know, hanging in limbo. Yeah. And everyone's just so bored looking for things to complain about. And I don't know, I'm, I was watching Yastrzemski games this, this morning. So clearly I, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm deep into the, into the Red Sox vault at this point. I'm watching like opening day, 1967 Sox Yankees at Yankee stadium. And Yastrzemski's like, doing somersaults to make outs in the outfield. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I didn't even think about watching the uh, 04 series on, on Ness and is how the formatting has changed so much for the, for the TV. I'm oh, like, why the is this square? Why, yeah. Yeah. Why can't I not get it be to full screen? I'm like, what's going on here? And yeah. You the dimension get technology. <laughs> Back when it, everything was filmed, that's like four by three dimensions. Yeah. You're like, I, I want this bigger. How do I blow it up? Right. How do I make this wider? So I, we have to ask, aside from 2004, which season or team was a favorite part of your career? Well, a couple teams pop out real quick. You know, we were talking earlier about Aaron Boone and the 2003 series and all that. But like, I like to remind a lot of Red Sox fans, they were lucky to even be in that series. I was with Oakland in 03, and we were up 2-0 on the Red Sox and come back to blow that series. But that uh, that 2003 Oakland team was was a really good team, and um, a 2000 White Sox team was uh, a bunch of younger guys who we we played really well together. And I regret how that team kind of got broken up because that team I think we could have uh, done some big things soon after. But you know, management had different ideas and all that. But you know, the 03 A's and the 2000 White Sox were probably my other favorite teams. So other as in, aside from Boston, where does Boston rank in that? I mean, obviously winning a World Series, does that make them like first, given every, like all the torment we put you through as fans? (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was a given. That's why I didn't. uh, I'm glad to to hear that. It was definitely the most special team I've ever been on. You know, it's like I talk about some of the other teams, like the 2000 White Sox, the 04 Red Sox were the exact opposite where, the White Sox, we were young. It was a young up-and-coming crew, and the Red Sox were the exact opposite. I mean, it's like we had a bunch of veterans on that team, and that's one of the things I think helped keep that team very calm is 95% of that team had been through the battles before, so we were able to to not get caught up in all the nonsense because we've been in the playoffs before. You know, 
people have lost before. And a lot of times you you gain more from losing than you do from winning. But that 04 team was definitely, a, you know, the most special team I've ever been a part of. I mean, it was a great group of guys on the field, but it was a great group of guys off the field as well. You guys just looked so fun to watch. But what do you think about the fact that you guys were called the Band of Idiots? Because that's like the funniest, most Boston sports thing that you have a, a team of superstar athletes, a lot of veteran players who have, you know, such incredible careers. And you're known as the Band of Idiots. Yeah, well, I mean, I obviously, I think we all know where that came from or who it was directed at. But I was on the 04 team. I can't say I was necessarily necessarily one of the idiots. <laughs> I definitely well, wait, who like the idiot? who are the idiots? Who were the idiots for you? I, I can't remember. You know, that's been a long <laughs> time ago. But uh, I think you can watch the videos and you, you guys kind of figure out who <laughs> who all that was targeted at. I just love seeing Millar walking around with like an old camcorder and it's such a retro vibe at this point. He's like walking around with like the handheld, like videotaping, yeah. walking into Francona's <laughs> office, just like holding the video camera. And you're like, wow. Like other than that, there's nothing really in this that kind of dates those games. And then you see that camcorder and you're just like, oh, yeah, right. Exactly. This was 16 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah. Now it's like, hold on. And I remember I was cleaning out my house the other day and I'm like, I found my old um, Palm Pilot. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, this is how far we've come. Oh my God, throwback. <laughs> I have one of those too. I don't know why. I, I, I think I my dad got a new one. So he gave me his and I, I felt so cool. I was like 12 years old. Like what did I need a Palm Pilot for? I think I just played like Snake on it or something, but I just, I still have one somewhere. Yeah, that's part of now. getting old. It's like you look back and you're like, wow, you know, the, the technology, just look where we've come in the last 15 years. It's incredible. So speaking of feeling old, you made your debut with the Giants in 97. And that was the only National League team you ever played for. What was it like? Did you ever have to hit? Yeah, I was a pretty good hitter coming up. You know, because college, I, you know, I played, I played a position. You know, I was playing third and, and short and I guess I played everywhere, really. But yeah, so I came up as a, as as a pitcher that could hit. In the minor leagues, we you know we would still hit on occasion. And when I got to uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, the Texas League, my Double A year, which must have been '96, um, the hitting coach actually put a lot of time into you know a few of us pitchers that could swing, and it uh, it benefited us. You know, I hit you know 3:30, I think, in my Double A year. So you know, when I got into the box, I was you know, in the big leagues, I wouldn't say I was completely comfortable, but I definitely wasn't uh, scared out of my mind where, you know, I got uh, I got a couple of big league hits. Now on Twitter, they would call you a pitcher who rakes. That's like the terminology that they like to use when someone like, you know, Granky gets up and hits a home run. I mean, it's one of those things. Pitchers, I mean, people forget it's like we're pitchers, but it doesn't mean that we can't play other positions. I mean, there's definitely some guys who can't play other positions. But, you know, it's depending on how you grew up. You know, I grew up playing positions all the time. So, you know, during BP, I love to take ground balls in the infield, you know, take fly balls and stuff. And, you know, so it's uh, being an athlete is being an athlete. You know, just because you're a pitcher doesn't mean you're not an athlete. So now you've been working with the Red Sox in pitching development. What's it been like mentoring young guys? It's one of those things where if you would ask me 15 years ago if I wanted to coach, it would have been firm no. You know, I didn't think I wanted any part of it. Really? Uh, but I think fatherhood changed a lot of how I looked at teaching and, and being a father type figure. And then, um, you know, I started getting this idea about the one thing that young players like in minor leagues, there is nobody ever really worked with the bullpen. 
a minor league bullpen group of, of guys is very overlooked. You know, most of the guys who came to the big leagues were always starters. And so I started pitching this idea and, you know, fortunately the, the Red Sox called me back on it and we're, well, this would have been five years this year, but I enjoy it tremendously. I, I think I need the players maybe more than they need me, but, you know, helping them with all aspects of the game and being able to, to help them hopefully not make the mistakes that I made on and off the field. You know, we, we talk about things that are all over the board, you know, about relationships and baseball and nightlife. And, you know, I really enjoy it. And it's it's uh, something I hope I can keep doing for a long time. You mentioned you need them more than they need you. What do you get out of coaching and working with these guys? You know, it, it's just like being a father where, you know, it's like I've known a lot of these guys for, for four or five years now. And, and starting to see those young players are making it to the big leagues. And being able to sit back, you know, have a cold beverage and watch one of your, you know, we'll call them protégés, but one of your players that you've known, you know, for when he was an A-ball, he couldn't throw the ball, you know, without hitting the backstop. Also, this guy's pitching in the big leagues. You know, it's like it's a very rewarding, you know, time. And just to be able to help these guys hopefully achieve their dreams like I was fortunate to be able to do, you know, that's that's what it is. It's like I want to help you. I want to help you get to the big leagues. I want to help you, you know, make hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, and, and just having that satisfaction of, of seeing that look on the player's face after he comes off the mound after a successful outing, you know, and it's just that you see the joy on their face. And it's one of those things like being a father. It's like, I love watching my kids be successful. It's, it's nice to, to hear that, like, you know, it's, it makes me happy to see you back with the organization just because I, I always think of you. I know you played for a bunch of other teams, but I always think of you as a Red Sox and knowing that you're out there kind of helping the next generation of hopefully future Red Sox. You know, I always ask you to unretire and you're like, no, I'm working on the next guys. <laughs> so who's an arm you see making a big impact on the future of the Sox, especially like given the state of the current starting rotation and the bullpen like the Red Sox are not exactly known for developing arms and now they're not exactly known for spending money either so what are your thoughts on how they're gonna kind of find healthy arms to move yeah, forward well they they still spend a lot of money don't don't be fooled by that but uh, with Haim coming in and, and having a new a new philosophy and how you know the team's gonna be run it was kind of funny. You always hear about the, how the Red Sox never develop all this pitching and stuff. Being on the inside now, it's not that we don't develop pitching. It's Boston is always a win now type mentality. So a lot of our young players get traded off. You know, we have we have players in the big leagues all over the place. You know that we developed, but you use them as you know I don't call them trade bait, but you know you use them as collateral to get you know the big time players that can help you win now. But, you know, you look at our bullpen, most of our bullpen is all homegrown guys before, well, before this year, I think. But, you know, we, we do a pretty good job of developing the pitching. And over the last two years now, you know, we've traded a lot of guys to, to get those big leaguers, you know, but we have, you know, six or seven, eight big leaguers, bullpen guys that are in the big leagues just with other ball clubs now. Yeah, did you have a chance to work at all with um, Michael Kopech, who ended up being a piece of the big trade for uh, Chris Sale? Yeah, no, he was, when I started working, he was lower than, than the teams I was working with. But, you know, so I didn't, uh, didn't really spend any time around him. Yeah, I'm just, I was just wondering, because, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the arms that have been developed in the 
in the organization have been used as trade pieces. And that's being an insider and working with these guys yourself. I mean, you see how these guys develop and it's just, it's kind of a shame that Red Sox fans get don't get to see these guys develop in the same way. They're only, a lot of them are only looking at the big league level. And one of the biggest complaints about Dave Dombrowski was that he went and got people like Price and Sale and Kimbrell, and he used a lot of farm guys to get them, which obviously paid off really well. But do you think that the organization is going to kind of make a shift towards actually trying to move up the arms that they're developing now? Or do you think they're going to keep doing trades instead? I try to, I try to stay away from being, you know, being GM, but you know, I said, hi, you know, they went out there and I think the philosophy is going to be more of, you know, we're going to find the good players, you know, and we're always going to go out and find people from the outside because you know, Boston's not Red Sox. Red Sox aren't a team who we're never going to really go through those rebuilding years. Um, And it's, it's tough on the front office to find those quality players that don't break the bank. You know, I think that's the philosophy that we're going with now. You know, we, we're still going to put winners out there, but uh, you know, we're going to just try and do it for not spend as much money. But, you know, a lot of our minor league bullpen arms, you know, you've seen over the last couple of years and uh, some of them work out, you know, some of them need a little more development and, you know, they're going to have to develop in the minor leagues, you know, more than they're going to, we don't have time to let them develop in the big leagues is I think that's the big thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things last year was that, you know, as the starting rotation in Boston got increasingly unhealthy, Cora had to keep bringing up different guys from Pawtucket. And it kind of became this like weird joke of a revolving door that, you know, they'd bring up someone like Taylor or Smith or Shawarin and they'd be up there for however long and then they'd send them back down and bring up another pitcher. And it was clear none of them were really ready for the big league level, but they didn't really have another choice. And it looks now like they were going to have to do that again this year before everything happens. Do you have any thoughts on like how they could get around doing that without, like you said, spending a ton of money? I mean, they're going to have to get creative if they don't want to be big spenders. Yeah, but, you know, it's one of those things where we did roll through a lot of people last year. You know, a lot of them showed kind of what they could do. So, you know, it's not uncommon to have guys go up and down one or two times, you know, to give that give them that year of, OK, this is what the big leagues is like. You kind of go up there every time you get out there, you you become a little more comfortable, a little more comfortable. It's not that they don't have the ability, but sometimes you just have to get comfortable so you can relax and let your athletic ability actually come out. You know, you're not going out there scared out of your out of your mind. You know, and it's like, oh, my gosh, am I going to get sit down if I don't make this pitch? You know, because tight muscles don't work. So you got to be able to go out and relax and, and have a good time. I think they, they need to get back to having a little bit more fun and st- not yeah. stressing so much. That's the hard part, you know, <laughs> is having fun, but getting the job done, you know, and that's why you make a lot of money when you get to the big leagues. But, you know, it's, and that's why there's, you know, there's only 850 of them in the world. You know, it's there's. Some people can do it, some can't, you know, and it's our job to to help out the guys who, you know, who are on the edge, you know, let's, we're trying to make them better players. So who are some of your favorite pitchers to watch around MLB right now or not right now, but <laughs> what, what, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. You know, I'm a huge Chris Sale fan. I love everything about how he pitches, his tempo, how he attacks hitters. He makes it look so easy in such a simple manner. I don't really watch a whole lot of other baseball besides the the Red Sox. But, you know, even Erod, you know, he's developing into one of – he's going to be a top-tier pitcher. And every year, he's kind of the same way. It's like he goes out there and he just attacks the hitters. He does it in a very a quick pace, but he just always looks in control. And even when he's not in control, you always give the appearance like you are in control. You know, it's like like the old commercial, don't let people see you sweat. You know, it's one of those things, don't let people see you, you know, panicking on the mound. What you're saying about sales tempo and like when he's healthy and when he's in a groove, just how quick he shuts guys down. It always makes me think back to that. Um, series against the Yankees closing it out in 2018 when I think he struck out the entire side to end the game there or only faced four batters or something. But he's just such an animal when he's on. What do you think about him having to get Tommy John now? You know what? It's one of those things. It's it's unfortunate that, you know, even last year he had to deal with all this. And I guess if we had that crystal ball, we could have looked in and said, hey, you know, let's go ahead and bang this out now. And you'll be ready for, you know, for, for this year. But, um, you know, it, it's I'm glad he's having it now because, you know, once we kind of get over the shock of like, oh, my gosh, we're going to lose him for the 2020 season. The good thing is we'll have him back ready for the 21 season. So, um, you know, like I said, I'm a huge fan of his and his bulldog mentality and how he attacks hitters. And like I said, he's one of those things, you know, when it comes to sale day, you know, my TV's on, you know, I'm watching him pitch. Yeah, my great uncle is going to be 102 in June, and he's a lifelong Red Sox fan. He said, I've never seen anyone pitch like Chris Sale. And I'm like, all yeah. right, you're 102 years old. I'm <laughs> I'm taking you at your word. That's so many Red yeah. Sox pitchers. But I mean, if you look back, uh, Pedro Martinez was the same was the same way. Oh, yeah. You know, you get these guys where you don't have to be intimidating and, and stature, but it's like how they deliver the ball is – you know what, the, they let their actions speak all they need to speak. You know, back in the day, Pedro was one of the most feared, if not the most feared pitcher of, of his time. And then, you know, he's always one of the smallest guys in the team. But it's that dog. When that, you know, when you bring that dog to the fight, you never know what you're going to get. And the thing with Sale that really kind of bummed me out was that he actually was much better than his stats indicated for the first half of last year. I mean, he all the pitchers on the Sox had a rough start. But when you actually look at sales performances in a lot of his games before the All-Star break, he was striking out like eight, nine, 12 batters. He was throwing immaculate, multiple immaculate innings. And he was the first pitcher since 1928 to have two immaculate innings in a single season. He was Chris Sale. The problem was they weren't winning those games. Like he struck out 17 batters and they lost that game in extra innings. Because the he offense got no just, run support ever. Well, he yeah. never does. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's literally my thing with him is like you know, you and it's always so hard on Rodriguez. himself in post game. It's hilarious. Yeah, he's like blaming himself because the offense doesn't show up, and it reminds me actually of what Pedro said after game two of the '04 ALCS. He said, "All I can do is go out there and pitch. I can't do anything if they don't score runs." I'm like, Chris Sale's out there striking out 17 batters, not walking a single man. For the first time since Pedro did that in like 2000 or 01 or something, and he's blaming himself in post game because the offense didn't show up. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah, but that's one. Of those, that's another thing about Chris Sale and about some of these, you know, uh, great teammates and great athletes is, you know, it's always kind of had the uh, the mentality of, 
you know, when you go out and you win, you win as a team. You know, when, when I would go out and pitch bad, it's like you, you win as a team, you lose as an individual for, for me, where it's, you know, you're going to just kind of take the blame for what happened. And, you know, it's one of those things. That's what Chris does. You know, he takes the blame, you know, even though, you know, we all know it wasn't his fault, but he takes the blame and, and takes the heat off to everybody else. He's a great teammate. I respect him so much for holding himself accountable, even when he's not the one that needs to be holding himself accountable. Yeah, yeah but that's that's being a true professional. And that's being one of those guys that you build a team around. You know, that's uh, you want to have your young players grow up and be like Chris. You know, it's not be like Mike, it's be like Chris. <laughs> and, you know, it's, you know, it's funny you talk about the run support with, with Chris. Erod is the exact opposite, you know. For whatever reason, the team goes out and they score, you know, six, seven, eight runs every time that guy goes out to the mound. Yeah, he had the highest run support average of any pitcher in MLB last year. And Sale had one of the lowest. And I was yeah. like, this is crazy. They had like a, <laughs> there was one game. They scored nine runs in one inning against your former Chicago White Sox. And I was just looking at this. I'm like, they gave him more runs in one inning of support than they gave Sale in his last three games. Yeah. I was like, I was losing my mind. But I have one more player development question for you, because as you know, the minor leagues, MLB and the minor leagues, their um, their agreement expires in the fall. And MLB is trying to get rid of 42 minor league teams. And now that you've been working with the Red Sox in player development for all this time, what are your thoughts on that current situation and everything, how, how the, the shutdown with sports is affecting the minor leagues and how the agreement is going to affect the minor leagues because this really is something that should be talked about more and you're on the inside of it. I mean, I am on the inside of it, but I don't know any more than what you know, but as far as the uh, getting rid of some of the teams, you know, it's, you get to know the, the people who run some of these minor league teams. And when you start talking about, you know, you know, it's Lowell on the chopping block and stuff like that. Well, you get to know the people who run those ball clubs. And I mean, they're great people. Lowell is, uh, I mean, they pack that place every night. You know, the fans support it. And the thought of them losing their team and happening, you know, happening at 39 other places around the country, it's a little bit disturbing. I haven't put a whole lot of effort into trying to understand why MLB wants to do this. I mean, but yeah, that's one of those things where I kind of stay arm's length away from the front office stuff. But that would be tough, you know, for those cities, obviously, but probably has to revolve around money, I guess, right? Doesn't everything yeah, in sports revolve around yeah. money? But oh, you, you know, the other thing about the minor league season now is with, with you know with the pandemic and the shutdown stuff. Unfortunately, I think the minor league season is in great jeopardy this year because you know we can't even get the big leaguer started, and then you know trying to get a couple hundred minor leaguers started is you know with all this stuff still going on, it's you know I'm I'm a little nervous about it. There were rumors that it wasn't going to happen at all. Yeah, I mean it's because you got to think if you know, they're still trying to figure out a plan for the big leagues, you know, and if those guys say, you know, they start playing, you know, first part of July, you know, well, the minor league season's over in September, you know, and it's so are you really going to get these guys fired up for two months worth of baseball? You know, at least the big leagues, you know, they have the facilities, they have the grounds crew that can take care of fields. But, you know, you, you take, for example, Portland, Maine, you know, you have, you know, four or five guys working on that field and all of a sudden the weather starts to turn. It's like, they don't have the equipment. The fields aren't aren't built, you know, to play into you know October, November. So you're work and you're working yeah. with these guys in the minors so closely. How much growth do you see them do on like a yearly basis? Like, what do you think the trickle down effect will be of this 
if that does happen, if we do lose like a year of all minor league baseball, like how do you send guys up and down if you do have, if you do salvage a regular season in MLB, like how, what will that even look like? Uh, that's, you know, right now that is literally the million dollar question because yeah. you talk about the development from year to year of these guys, it's, you know, again, it's like going back to where these are kind of, you know, like our children where you see your children takes huge strides from year to year. You know, these guys are a year older, you know, they're becoming, you know, some of them are in the early twenties, you know, technically you're not even a grown man yet. So you see these guys come back and you see them mature and they're physically stronger and they're smarter and they're starting to, they're starting to hone their craft where they're, you know, they make fewer mistakes. And all of a sudden you have this happen where it's like, wow, what, what happens? Like you, you skip an entire year, you know, what happens with the college guys coming into pro ball? It's like, there's so many questions that I don't think anybody has the answer for because this is unprecedented. You know, we've never been down this path before. And, you know, I feel bad for the, for the young players because what, what's going to happen. That's, that's all we can ask is what's going to happen. I mean, I have no answers. That's probably one of the hardest parts about all of this is so much of everything right now is just wait and see, like stay home and wait and see. There's no answers. There's no like, Every year you circle opening day on the calendar. There's just no opening day and there's no comeback day. It's just no, yeah, no timetable. Like we don't, you can't look into the crystal ball and say, okay, you know, we're going to start playing July 1st. You know, who knows, you know, if this stuff keeps going, what the governor, you know, the, the country itself is going to do. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's who knows, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And you have, of course, like places like California and New York, they're saying there there might not be any kind of gatherings or sporting events for the whole rest of 2020. So you're like, well, how are you going to bring back sports when five major league teams are in the state of California? And, you know, you've got two of them in New York. It's like, all right, so we're going to have baseball without the Yankees and the Dodgers. Like that's haven't the Dodgers been through enough. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, I mean, it depends if you're a Dodger fan. I know you're a Southern Cal girl, so. <laughs> I'm always a Boston girl. But yeah. um, we're going to let you go because we know you have some beautiful Arizona sunshine to get to. But we're asking everybody that we that comes on the show the same question at the end. And I can probably. Yours is probably obvious. <laughs> yeah, yours might be obvious, but we're going to ask you anyway. We're asking everybody what their favorite sports memory is. And it can be like a game you watched one of your son's games, one of your games, oh, yeah. well, this, 2004. This yeah. <laughs> no, but my greatest sports memory is the uh, 1980 Olympics. That was one of those things that really changed my life. Made me a hockey fan for life. Yeah. That was one of those things where, you know, obviously the 04 stuff is great, but the 1980 Olympics were, I mean, that was one of the, as a young boy, that was one of the things that really changed my life. Well, You're I talking about watching the miracle on ice team was bigger that, for you than is, winning a world series is, and pitching yeah, the last that out. Is, that is the one. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, ironically enough, I was able to meet uh, Mike Ruzioni last year. And that was like one of those things where I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like I remember sitting on oh, the couch Boston guy yeah, yeah, and my USA blue jumpsuit thing, you know, and it's like watching, uh, you know, watching them play on TV. And it was, that's when I'm like, you know what? I want to be a hockey player. Wow, so you, up you East, really East are Texas. a hockey fan, real deal. Oh, I love hockey. That's, yeah, like I was a hockey player playing baseball. I just can't skate. <laughs> I love that. That's what, love that's that what for you. Yeah, the NHL, I couldn't skate. So you're saying that if you could skate, we might still never have won a World Series? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> hey, thank God, well, you, thank, well, thank God you can't skate then. 
Yeah, maybe I'd have been a two-sport player. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's a guy who played for, like, the Celtics and also played Major League Baseball. I'm trying to remember who it was, but all I can say is I don't think anybody listening to this podcast was going to think that you weren't going to say the 2004 World Series for your favorite sports memory. So that is is kind of awesome. I'm sure we, I'm sure we all know it's probably more of a tie, but you know, maybe I'm just saying it just to to switch it up. Keep people guessing. That's what I love to do. Well, Keith, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, for being my childhood hero. I know that's like the lamest thing. And I've said it to you probably 50 (laughs) times already since I've known you. You're making me feel old. Well, I, the first time I met Keith, I just have to say, I cried in front of him. So it's like, it's it's all been uphill from there because I don't cry anymore. So it's fine. Yeah. Um, well, that's my MO. I, I make women cry all over the country. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, you can find Keith on Twitter. His Twitter handle is his name. And uh, if you want to just like enjoy some really great baseball, you can go and watch him destroy Yankees and Cardinals hopes and dreams all over YouTube and MLB TV. And Nesson. Thank you again. And Nesson. And Nesson. Shout out Nesson. Thank you again. This was so much fun. Thanks, Keith. So fun. Thank you, ladies. Thanks for having me. had a good time. I'm legit emotional. I still can't believe we had Keith on. It was such an honor, such a treat. And he's already agreed to come back, which is crazy. So I guess we didn't, we didn't bother him too much about 2004, which is saying something. Cause I asked him, I asked him to come back and save the Red Sox pitching staff, like at least once a month during the regular season, such a treat. Thank you, Keith. Literally we'll be thanking him for the rest of my life. Cause he brought us 2004. That's our show today. Uh, so much baseball so- today. A lot of baseball today. <laughs> I loved it. Shout out to Keith Folk for being, aside from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, my dream guest. So to make sure you guys don't miss the awesome episode we have in store for you next week, make sure you subscribe and download Girl at the Game podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you tune in. And also be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Girl at the Game. And with that, we'll send you guys out with your throwback of the episode. Such a good throwback. Bye, guys. Bye.